0: Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining me again for another one of my uh, YouTube videos and Podbean podcasts on my blog, Gaudium. best22.com. Very excited to have a repeat uh, guest on the show. I'm always happy to welcome Dr. Lewis Ayers uh, to the show. He is a, a scholar of, of international renown, well-versed in the early church fathers and the history of the early church uh, and, and uh, and as well as just uh, theology in general. Uh, Dr. Ayers is professor of Catholic and historical theology at the University of Durham in the UK and professorial visiting fellow at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne, Australia. Is, uh, is all that biographical information still true, Lewis?
1: I hope so. <laughs> Unless I've been fired, it's true. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I once knew a a fellow faculty member at my former employer, DeSales University, who was never told that he had been switched from one department to another and that his entire teaching load had been altered while he was away on sabbatical in Ireland. And he didn't find out about any of this till he got home and a student came up and was talked to about some class that he didn't realize he was going to be teaching. But this. So you never know, Lewis, (laughs) you you never know. You better check. You better still see if you're employed. But anyway, hey, welcome to the show. What we're going to be discussing today is uh, a concept that is very much in the news, it seems to me these days, in theological circles, Catholic circles in particular. Uh, It's the concept of the development of doctrine. And of course, this has always been uh, an issue, an ecumenical issue between Protestants and Catholics, but now even internally in the Catholic Church, especially since the Vatican Council And maybe now on steroids, just a bit with Pope Francis, there's a renewed intra ecclesial debate within the Catholic Church as to what a development of doctrine looks like. Can it involve massive reversals, ruptures? Must it be a strict continuity? What is it? What is it? So I was uh, very interested in talking to Dr. Ayers about this because he is, like I said, a scholar of the early church and the church fathers and Augustine and people like that. But he had a, a very interesting article in Church Life Journal, which is put out by the University of Notre Dame, uh, edited by Arthur Rossman, the rascal Arthur Rossman. Uh, And uh, this was dated June 20th, 2023. And the name of the article is Does Doctrine Develop an an Answer in Six Steps? And I was very impressed by this article. Uh, And so I I asked Dr. Ayers to come on, and here he is. So let's go through uh, these six steps. Hopefully I've delineated them Properly, uh, but before we go into the article, do you have any sort of preliminary remarks you just want to make about the topic of development in general before we go into these specifics?
1: Yeah, thanks very much, Larry, for having me on again. Um, I think the first thing that I, I I want to say is that Newman is my guy here. Um, there's there's not really been anything written, I think, since Newman's development of doctrine. That replaces what he said. There are, you know, there are nuances we need here and there, um, and there is a certain sort of scholarship, perhaps re- represented by Nick Lash's book from the late sixties, which says, "No, we can't really talk about continuity anymore." Um, but I don't think that's true. I don't think it can be true for Catholics. Um, but I think that Newman, Newman is still the guide, um, perhaps especially now when there are some forces who think that development means radical change that doesn't really seem to have any continuity with before. And um, we need something a little bit more careful, a little bit more cautious. Um, And returning to Newman is not a bad idea.
0: (laughs) I couldn't agree more. There's also, I I think, uh, uh, Maurice Blondel's version of development of doctrine as well, Uh, which I think is very similar to Newman's in many ways, very similar to Newman's in many ways, Uh, perhaps uh, towards the end of the broadcast too. If you're familiar with the latest work of David Hart, apocalypse on, you know, apocalypse and tradition in which he severely, well, not severely. It's a, it's the criticism of a a friend of a sympathizer where David Hart is critical of Newman's concept of Are you familiar with Hart's uh, critique of Newman at all? Yeah. Okay, well, maybe yeah, yeah. maybe we can get into yeah. that t- towards trouble the end. Trouble with David
1: is David's a lot, David's a lot cleverer than you and me, but <laughs> I think more and more it becomes unlike Christianity. That's the trouble.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I think that's a, a common feeling among many of us who, I am certainly not worthy to, you know fasten the sandals on his feet. Intellectually speaking, uh, that that is for sure. And I have great admiration for David. Great admiration. But uh, I agree with that assessment. But anyway, let's let's hold that in abeyance for now. Let's let's begin at the beginning here with your article. Then this uh, concept the development of doctrine in six steps. You begin the article by talking about uh, Gregory of Nazianzus and uh, Vincent mm-hmm. of Lorraine and his, you know. Communatorium or whatever. So maybe you can unpack that for us a little bit. What, what were what was the view of development of some of these early church fathers?
1: Yeah, but the reason that I begin begin there is simply to point out that this is a perennial discussion. This is not something that's new, um, that only occurs because of modern historical consciousness. That that really forces it upon us. But there are periods within the church, and the fourth century, fifth century is one. Um, where there are smart thinkers around who recognize that doctrinal expressions have changed and they are struggling to say something, uh, something about it. Um, And if you look at those uh, writers and Gregory Nazianzen especially, one of the first things that you see that I think is really fundamental is the idea that there is a slow emergence of doctrinal teaching is part of what God intends. It's not simply something which happens by accident; it can't be helped. Um, rather, this is something intrinsic to the very nature of revelation, and I think that's very, very uh, important as a as a starting point. Um, exactly, you know, how we take that forward is a complex matter. But Gregory sees the Spirit drawing us into all truth over time, <clears throat> and that means we will gradually say things that before we could not say clearly. Um, But Gregory uh, and Vincentius both think that that doesn't mean the faith changes. Um, And it means that we ought to be able to trace that continuity back. Um, One of the points I make there as well is that this this growth is a growth in knowledge of the same realities. So it's understanding the reality of God more deeply It's not primarily a matter of changing some ideas. Gregory is not concerned so much with the problem of in 1850, we said X, and now I want us to say Y. Um, Rather, he's noticing slow development in language, uh, the emergence of things like the Nicene Creed. And he's saying this must somehow accord with the way that God wants knowledge of God to unfold. And it seems to be, Hinted at in the scriptures, a spirit leading us forward. And at the same time, it's always a growth in knowledge of the same realities. It's not somehow some fundamental change. Um, So that development is something which unfolds to some extent under divine guidance and is an opportunity for us to grow in knowledge of God. That seems to me the point of departure that we, we have to have to think about the problem.
0: Yeah. And what are the two principles laid down in the communitarium of of Vicentius? Obviously, you know, well, I'll let you describe them because you mentioned them in the article instead of me talking at you about something you already know.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the difficulties is that um, uh, Vincent says two things which don't necessarily cohere. Um, One is to insist there is real growth. Because if there isn't real growth in knowledge, then we're really stuck. But at the same time, what we have to do is to attend to what the Catholic Church itself um, has—what has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. Um, now, even Vincent himself must know that that's something of a tall order. Um, <laughs> <it's>
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: but 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 he, he he's trying to get at the idea that there is a universal rule of faith which has stood and yet there's growth in understanding of it. And I think what he's doing, the best way to take him is to sort of setting up the problematic that we are, we're we're stuck with rather than thinking he provides a solution. Um, One of the ways in which he's badly used is by wheeling out one, one of these formulae um, as if it somehow solves a problem Um, because it, it doesn't really. I mean, you can find people certainly in the 19th century context uh, saying, oh, well, we just have to attend to that which is believed everywhere, always and by all. Okay, great. Um, The difficulty is historically that's very, very difficult to show. Um, But but he's getting at something that that is vital. Um, So I think he's a sort of guide setting out two sides of the problem both of which we have to hang on to.
0: Yeah, it seems to me he's wrestling with, with the problematic that, uh, you know, the, the charge could be made that perhaps this is all tautological in one sense, circular, uh, that what we eventually decide upon as the church is precisely, therefore, what God obviously originally wanted us to decide and was guiding us to get there. So it becomes a sort of self-confirmation loop over time, and yet it seems to me, Vincent, aware of that problematic, say, "No, there's got to be some kind of Ariadne's thread that that is linking this development together."
1: Yeah, not not all circles are vicious. I mean, sometimes <laughs> yeah. and, uh, sometimes uh, you know it, it can be a viciously circular argument, right? And you you're just being a bit dumb. Uh, and sometimes it's a circular argument because it's only when you are in the loop of seeing how definition has involved change and yet continuity and you circle around in that you can see the beauty of the thought and the development that's going on Uh, sometimes you have to rest with circles I mean one of the things that I think comes out of this discussion of development of doctrine is that we are part of a church that is guided and there are certain continuities which are vouchsafed to us and that's really important otherwise we could just make shit up Um,
0: That's right. That's right.
1: But at the same time, um, it's a mysterious process. This is not something entirely under human control. We are agents in a drama that God is playing out through us. And the development of doctrine is part of that.
0: I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I'm going to I'm going to quote you, Lewis, on that one. Not all circles are vicious. <laughs> uh, and, and I'll give you I'll give you proper attribution. Of course, if I may do a, a certain digression from your article, I was just reading an article sent to me uh, by Jenny Martin, Jennifer Martin at, at Notre mm-hmm. Dame. Yeah. Uh, and it it's on the really it's it's part of her review of David Hart's book on tradition. But I'm not going to get into her her uh, her. N- concept of, of David Hart's book. Instead, on this notion of, of development, and that the idea in the Fathers that this is how God intended this to happen as part of the economy of salvation, as we see in flowing from the Old Testament to the New. She has recourse here to Peggy, Uh, and, and let me just quote from her article, because I think this is great. She goes, in the notes on Descartes and the Cartesian philosophy of Peggy, Peggy establishes the necessity of Christ's memory being preserved, not by miracle or abstract principle, but rather by the living and dynamic processes of historical mediation. He writes, quote, Christ wished to be the material and the object of the exegete and the historian, the material, the object, the victim of historical critique in order that the incarnation be complete and entire, in order that it be honest, in order that it be neither limited nor fraudulent. His history had to be a human history subject to the historian, and his memory had to be a human memory and the memory of him, humanly, defectively conserved. In a word, his very history and memory had to be made incarnate. Uh, And End quote from Peggy. I I think that's a a kind of brilliant theological insight that Jenny is is appealing to here, uh, that we're not just talking here about some sort of ad hoc theological theory that has now been added on to the simplicity of the scriptural witness, that this is part of the dynamic of the incarnation as such that memory be preserved, the anamnesis of Christ is preserved, and you said, in this mysterious and imperfect process, but nevertheless in rather certain ways.
1: Yeah, I think I I think I think can go about 75% with Peggy there um, uh, for two reasons. One is that that's true, okay, God enters into history, and it's, a, it's real history. Um, at the same time, God enters into history in order to preserve teaching as well, so that we will understand who Christ is, the apostolic teaching is preserved. If we don't have that, then it's all gone. Um, yeah. So that, so that there's a there's a there's a dual dynamic there, um, and I think that it, it's easy to miss that in the excitement of presenting tradition as this exciting new process in which we don't know what's going to happen. Um, and <laughs> uh, you know, and you you've seen it. I've seen it. It's it's a it's a constant. It's exciting. Um, it's all in the future. Um, yes. There was this when I lived in Atlanta. There was this big Christian school that opened somewhere in North Atlanta, uh, among the mega homes, and it had this big banner outside. I've lost the photo that I took the day that it opened, and the banner just said, you know, crappy, crappy Christian school a tradition as old as tomorrow. (laughs) I love that. Anyway.
0: um, I'm going to rip that one off too. A tradition as old as old as
1: tomorrow. Yeah. The other thing, I mean, the other thing slightly problematic about Peggy there is just to say Christ as a history so that the historian can investigate. Well, historians come in different kinds and with different assumptions It's not just a neutral objective science that we somehow investigate the past past with. Uh, The eyes of faith are also important when you work as a historian. And again, that creates other circles um, and other problematics. Um, So Peggy, I think is 75% right there, but it would be very easy to quote him in the present context, in the early 21st century, to mean, therefore, I understand what Jesus meant by reading a bunch of New Testament historians and tradition is constantly changing. I don't think that's what Peggy meant, but we need to we need to be clear about those things. Well, I think think if if
0: if and I'm glad for all these caveats uh, and you're puncturing my balloon here, Lewis, come on. I, I said this was a profound statement and, you know, pr- pr- proved that it, it, it is not profound exposing me for the fraud that I am uh, in all of this. But if you read the entirety of Jenny's article, remember the context is she's arguing okay. sort of against David Hart's position here yeah. uh, and that, you know, it's just all after the fact, sort of mm-hmm. self-justifying the sort of vicious circular sort of reasoning, uh, which what which, which she's, actually using Peggy to show and I agree with you he can he, Peggy can be misused in exactly the directions you say what she's using him to show is that there is there is a historical element in the development of doctrine rooted right. in the in the Incarnation and that this is what we mean by tradition tradition is a passing on within history which is sometimes going to be messy but that doesn't foreclose the possibility of a continuity with the apostolic faith. And she's usually kind of show that. But anyway, I don't want to get bogged down into I'm not an expert in Peggy, although I like I like, uh, I like yeah. all those French dudes, Claudel, Peggy. <laughs> I don't know. I, I like all these French guys. Uh, but anyway, the, the, they're on something, but maybe a little too uh, too filled with uh, existential angst now and then. But let's move on then to, to, to point number two. You move on to Newman. All right. And, yep. you, and like you said at the beginning, say, yeah, Newman's my guy and I'm going to, and you make that point in the article. We're going in, in, in developing this concept of development, we're going to lean heavily on Newman. So you begin by discussing Newman's concept of development as a kind of deepening, which you say is very similar to the father. So maybe let's, let's, this is point number two, step two.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I in, in order to, in order to see what Newman's up to, um, you have to see that he offers you a general uh, analogy. You know, ideas develop, okay, um, and he means ideas in all sorts of ways. We have an intuition, and gradually it flowers over time. He means that a person has a basic sense of something as a child, and gradually they learn more. Usually, that it's you know darker than they thought as they grow up, uh, and that's just the nature of development. Um, But it's important to notice that when Newman really brings this out in its full form in his uh, 15th university sermon, the last university sermon he gave as an Anglican, um, it's important to see that he links this quite specifically with an idea of what it is that Christ impresses on the soul. Okay, so it's an analogy, but then he comes to the idea that, in fact, when scripture talks about. Christ dwelling in us by faith, he means that God has given us this idea which will flower in us, um, both as individuals and in us as a community over time, over history, uh, and that the core then of doctrine is not an idea that we have that somehow naturally develops like our ideas of, you know, whatever else, rather it's faith, which is a gift, which gradually unfolds over time. And I think that's once again where you see Newman giving a really theological account of what it is that's happening. Again, this is something which God makes possible, uh, as well as something which God makes possible in human beings, in in history. So that, that dynamic is there, I think, right at the beginning when Newman sets out this theory in its, in its mature form.
0: Yeah, and you know, and we see this, you know, I, I know I do, I'm sure everybody does. Where, uh, you'll you'll be at mass, for example, and suddenly a prayer that you've prayed your entire life, with words you've prayed your, and whether it's you know the Our Father or some other part of the liturgy, suddenly with a bolt of insight strikes you quite differently than you've ever seen it before, with a freshness, and a, and a provocation. That, that shocks you and surprises you sometimes. And you, you have this aha moment like, oh, what, well, da? Of course, that's what that means. Yeah. Of course, infrequently, I forget yeah. immediately what that insight was. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: of course, but, and you're but, betraying the fact there that you're lucky enough to go to somewhere where the words of the mass remain the same from week to week.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, they do. Indeed, I attend an Anglican ordinary at, uh, parish. And not only do the words remain the same, they are they are shockingly beautiful words
1: yeah yeah uh, but, the... but but seriously you're right yes i mean that's that's it's a lovely example i mean uh what what newman is talking about is about the complex expansion of ideas and recognitions not simply something that's a conscious process and i think yeah, that's really yeah. important for him in thinking about the church that the church comes to recognize something that previously Theologians argued over that was an important matter of piety, but people are not certain about the church is able to be drawn by the spirit into a recognition of the reality of something, just as you and I can have that experience with prayers that we think we knew.
0: Yeah, and then the role of the spirit is important here, because in answer to the question, well, why now? Why at this point in history did the church reach this insight? Yeah. This deepening. Or why at age 64 have I suddenly hit upon this new understanding Say of the Our Father? Well, you, at some point, you have to ascribe it to the role of the Holy Spirit yeah. and say, for whatever reason, the Spirit decided that now is the time for you to understand this better or for the church to grapple with it better. All right. So I I, I think that's uh, something that uh, just about everybody on any side of the political spectrum of, of the ecclesial political spectrum can agree with. But then we move on to sort of step number three here, which then is the specific problematic that modernity then presents to us with the concept of development. And if I lay it out, I mean, modernity presents us with a sort of this notion of progress and a progressive view of history. Uh, and, and what's interesting to me, in my mind, you don't make this explicit, but I, it, it interests me. So modernity combines this progressive narrative wh- where, since there is a point to history and that point is us, and, you know, Fukuyama or Lewis's notion of chronological snobbery, this or the point is us, it combines that with the notion that, well, yeah, but history is also this constant flux, this constant change, and all ideas and, and, and truths are historically embedded and contextualized. And, and and yet there's that tension between that notion and yet the idea that we somehow re- represent this culminating point. And it is into that mix, of course, that Vatican I happens and all. So what what dynamic are we dealing with now?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you've described the dynamic really well. And I think this is a context in which Newman is particularly interesting um, because Newman's Newman is not writing in order to justify a change that he wants to see. And that's absolutely vital. Okay. Yeah. A lot of people who talk about development of doctrine now mean, I want to see X happen. So I'm now going to waffle about how it's a development of doctrine. Uh, Newman's notion of development of doctrine is about assuring himself that there is a church which has spoken continuously. That's what he's trying to do. He's he's someone who's struggled with this problem for um, decades. And there's a beautiful new book out by a guy called Stephen Morgan called John Henry Newman and the Development of Doctrine, Encountering Change, Looking for Continuity, CUA Press. Quite recently, yeah. a beautiful attempt to show how Newman wrestled with this over decades. And his problem is not that he wants change, but he wants to be certain that there is continuity over time. And he gradually comes to the idea that it's only within the Catholic polity that perhaps there is development over time. And he writes this book in order to justify to himself seeing that continuity. So when he writes about the ways in which we can see continuity over time, he's always looking backwards rather than forwards. And I think he sees that as vitally important because for him, what matters about change is that it's a legitimate unfolding from the apostolic faith. And as a Christian, he wants to feel secure and nourished by the apostolic faith. So he's always looking backwards. So yes, there were all these questions, uh, especially, uh, uh, around 1870, Put to Newman, what's Newman going to do? What does he think about papal infallibility? Um, and Newman really, I think is able to say, well, I'm not sure it's the right time to do this for a host of reasons, but, I believe that this is the church that speaks because I've shown that. Therefore that's fine. There's a sort of, um, not a wholehearted embracing of the new because Newman recognizes that embracing the new is sort of problematic in the 19th, 20th, 21st century. We don't do that for its own sake. He's concerned that the church, um, remains continuous above all, it shows that continuity to the world. And I think he's able to go along with the definition of papal infallibility in the late 19th century, because in the end he sees that as a way of the church continuing to assert its its continuity with the apostolic preaching. Um, But the caution that Newman shows, I think is really, really important, given the way that we exist, as you say, in a notion of progress where we are always the end point uh newman knows that he doesn't know what the end point is other than christ and the judgment
0: yeah so let's dwell on that for a second the, the you know that he's been labeled what has you know come to me an know in, inopportunist right that he yeah. he didn't reject the dogma of papal infallibility he just thought that it was an inopportune time but um and of course because he's interested in, in maintaining continuity so was he was he of that point of view primarily because he saw it as creating ecumenical problems or because he saw it as creating an issue with more secular versions of modernity uh and and by the ecumenical forms i mean the the constant criticism of course of protestants against the catholic church is that it's constantly just making new stuff up just constantly making new shit up and and you know and is this just not another example of the catholic church just inventing something new and uh i don't know i I throw that back to you then why was he what what specific exact
1: the exact reasons are are not entirely clear I think what you've just said is a big part of it. Newman's quite worried that this sends the wrong message. You know, uh, Newman has lived a life that's about showing that the church is continuous, and he understands very deeply the sort of problematic notions of progress that are fro- floating around in the in, in the 19th century and he understands entirely the sort of Protestant problematic or the Protestant charge against Catholicism that you have raised. But, of course, Newman's not doing this for ecumenical so much as evangelistic grounds. Yeah,
0: I think that's a better way to put it, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. He wants to draw people into the church, and he's not certain that this is the right thing to do. And I think also, you know, he's quite fairly, he's worried about the dispute among Catholic theologians about this. You know? Um yeah. and, I, and, and and that that's that's fair enough. But Newman is always a man of the church. So when the church has spoken and he's already over a lifetime committed himself to the church as having the ability to speak, on we go. Uh, and I think that's always one of the most impressive things about him. Um something yeah, that absolutely. was sort of the newspaper journalistic mind at the time never really grasped so they're all worried what will newman do the answer to what will newman do was probably clear long before he's going to go with what the church decides because this is yeah. the church and that's his lifetime's absolutely. decision um,
0: I yeah i think that it, yeah his concerns are e- towards evangelization rather than ec- ecumenicity is uh an absolutely necessary sort of correction there because Obviously, it's anachronistic as heck to start talking about Newman being concerned with ecumenical relations. Yeah. I mean, th- that's that's almost a pure invention of the 20th century. I mean, the 19th century, post-Reformation, it was almost totally taken over to simple, you know, combat between the, the various factions <laughs> of the Christian faith and polemics yeah. and so on. Uh, and certainly Newman was... <laughs> <laughs> the, the butt end of a great deal of those polemics once, once he converted. So yeah, evangelizing, so very, very true. Now that brings us then to, uh, I mean, Newman, one of the things that, that in my reading of Newman, uh, when I first started reading Newman, my main interest was in, underst- and this leads into your next point, point number five, was in understanding Newman's critique of modern liberalism. Liberalism with a big L, political, the sort of culture and politics and so forth that flows out of the Enlightenment, through the from the French Revolution, through the British Enlightenment, Locke, Rousseau, all these guys, right? Um, that Newman saw very early on, very presciently, that embedded within liberalism was a very a fundamentally toxic notion to the faith. Am I? Can you maybe unpack that a little bit before we move yeah. on to your next point?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is where Newman's epistemology is vital to the whole system. And it is one of his most important contributions, I think. You know, he he prefigures in many ways by a whole century the sort of themes in Gadamer that grab the attention of many, many people in the sort of 70s, 80s and 90s, and yeah. um, but but in a very, very simple way, uh, the importance for Newman of the judgments which precede um, all of our decisions. Um, so I give the I, I give the example, the simple example in this piece that I give with generations of students. you know, Lewis goes to the grocery store to buy some cereal, and there's a whole wall of crap to look at in different flavors, and I pick one that says this has got more fiber and less sugar. Great. OK, uh, if Newman is standing behind me, he's going to say, you <laughs> think you've made a decision on rational grounds, boy. Um, but actually, what you've done is to allow a host of assumptions to work for you. So, you you know, you think, you know, that less sugar is good for you, but you have the scientific education of a rat um, and you know, you think the fiber is good for your gut, but you you know, haven't had a science lesson since 1982, which is true, um, you have no way of assessing that evidence. You're just assuming it. But Newman says, don't worry about it because that's actually how we proceed. I mean, there's a lovely passage in the development in, in sorry, in uh, the grammar of ascent, where he asks how we know whether Britain is an island. It, and it's absolutely hilarious, uh, trying to show that we actually, we make assumptions. Um, but if, if that's the case, then we have to think about our reasoning slightly differently. Um, we have to be a, a, aware of the antecedent probability of certain things happening. We have to accept that we exist in such a world. Actually, was it last year? The beginning of last year, I was teaching intro to theology. And there was this uh, fairly smart kid who's sitting at the front and I'm on a sort of Newman McIntyre rant Um, about how we are made up of uh, assumptions and history and so forth. And suddenly she puts her hand up and she says, Professor Ayres, if all that's true, where am I? And we had this really (laughs) interesting discussion (laughs) in which she assumed that I must be the free bit somehow in the middle, that there's all these other things that have gone into making you up. But well, there must be this bit in the middle that's, that's not right. really affected by those things because otherwise, where am I? And it was a really interesting discussion to get, you know, get, get the students to try and recognize it. That uh, in other words, history.
0: what she was, she was asking, am, am I a pure construct of some kind? Or, yeah. Yeah. Am and, I and just a there, construct? You know? Yeah. Is there no there, there, that, that, there's I no there,
1: can... there, if there's history, there's no me. Um, but, and I think that what, you know, And there's something terribly modern in her assumption, obviously enough. And what Newman is doing uh, back in the 1860s here is saying, no, that simply is not how how decisions work. And so when you come to think about the difference between the church's decision-making and my scientific free decision-making, let's not pretend that we're dealing with two different worlds. Um, and I think that it's partly apologetic, but it's partly also deeply important for encouraging modern people to recognize who they are and how they make decisions.
0: Yeah, I, I think this is a terribly important point because, and and, and part of it is an apologetic point, uh, and you, you're, you're trying to get people to see things, because one of my... Uh, things that I that I go on. What I'm on about is is that, yeah, we're in a postmodern culture, post -post postmodern or whatever you want to call it. But there are elements of just good old fashioned Newtonian modernity that still remain with us and, and on a popular level, even amongst like major scientists and major thinkers. And that is, is that, well, the modern world and science are predicated on facts and things that are provable, and we don't make the kinds of assumptions that faith-based people do, and our reason can be justified. And so it's, it's a question of the what are the public warrants for the reason that we embrace as a culture? And those public warrants are just assumed, but they just don't see that these are assumptions. Uh, and, and so I think this is an unbelievably important point that that, that needs to be driven home over and over again that our culture is riddled with these kinds of assumptions. I mean, Newman is 170 years ahead of his time.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the whole idea that somehow that aspect of modernity is gone and we live in some other period, it's just not true. You just got to listen to political discourse, listen to the scientific critiques of religion, et cetera, et cetera. It, it's absolutely central in our culture. Um, and it And it simply doesn't help. Um, it's well, yeah, a,
0: the, exact, the whole debate. Uh, well, I don't know. I don't want to get into it, but the whole debate over COVID vaccines and all this and COVID and the lockdowns and all that and the constant mantra. I don't know what it was like in the UK, but here in the United States, the constant mantra was follow the science, you troglodytes, you right wing nutjobs, <laughs> follow the science, follow the science. And And to which my response, of course, which would have been I think Newman's is like, well, yeah. which science, whose science? Uh, there are conflicting voices. You are assuming that you anyway, let's not go down that path. Uh, so anyway, that was actually <laughs> po- point number four in your six steps. This th- yeah. which well, I'm glad we got to, which is modernity gives rise to this caricature of uh, of reason versus faith. And as Newman correctly points out, ultimately, there are assumptions epistemologically that we all have to make uh, that take us back to certain foundational first principles. And so that then brings me to sort of step number five here, that this sort of remains on the level of epistemology and philosophy. What concretely does this then mean for the church's mode of theological reasoning when it comes to talking about the development of doctrine? That's sort of your step number five here, the church's mode of theological reasoning.
1: Well, I think, I think this is where you see the subtlety of Newman's thoughts about how we not so much test developments, but look back and envisage the developments which have occurred. Because once again, he's not interested in changing something. He's interested in looking backwards um, in order to give himself a deeper sense of the tradition, deeper security within it. Um, And there are two sorts of things that I'd want to highlight. I mean, one is the importance of fittingness as a concept. So is it, is it likely that given X, Y has developed? Uh, it's a very deeply embedded ancient uh, principle that we should work out, well, what is it fitting to say of God, for example? That comes with it a whole host of broad cultural assumptions. Um, we have to learn as theologian, what is it fitting to say about God? We have to think about whether developments which have occurred over the centuries make sense. Do they exhibit beauty? Are they fitting? Do they show order? Do they seem in accord with other theological realities in order to make those judgments? We have to be well-trained. We have to think ourselves into them very cautiously and carefully, which Newman's trying to, to perform for you. Uh, That's really, really important. Um, And also, this is where you come secondly to Newman's idea of this, the seven notes of authentic development. Um, um, uh, Once again, these are not tests that you can apply to something which is happening in the present so much as they are things that you ought to bear in mind for looking backwards. Um, And what he's trying to do is to separate out the, the different aspects that we should look for you know continuity in type um i think is an especially interesting one so we we look at a development we ask ourselves whether the continuity that we can see the development that we can see continues certain aspects that were there in earlier statements i think in both cases it's really important to remember that newman's 15th University Sermon begins with Mary pondering all things in her heart, yes. right? The model that Newman offers you for the one who thinks about development is Mary pondering things. It's not the sort of investigative historian or the theologian who wants something new. It's Mary pondering things. And I think that's because this whole question of exploring the history of the church and development is something that he takes to be the task of someone who is at least seeking to develop a mature faith a subtle ability to investigate different phenomena who's attentive to what it is that the spirit gives it's a multifaceted form of attention that is not easily taught or attained but he i think he's trying to show you that it's it's plausible it's possible we can have hints of that we can see the slow unfolding of the spirit's guidance in the history of the church even as much as we also must see it often as tragedy and and that's that's absolutely fine but it's a task for the christian imagination as much as anything else
0: that speaks directly to the balthazarian soul within me uh you, you <laughs> You mentioned in your art. I have to apologize to my listeners. I am suffering from allergies this morning. So my voice is a little gravelly, but anyway, uh, the, uh, you mentioned in the article, something about, I, I can't remember the exact quote, something about theologians looking away from their studies to look up at the icons of the saints, yeah. you know, h- hanging on the wall. And, of course, that's a very Balthasarian idea as well, the coming together of, of theology and sanctity, where you develop theology, as Balthazar famously said, on one's knees praying, yeah. which is another way of just saying, you know, Mary pondered these things in her heart, which means that the proper stance of of theologians, but then of the church as a whole, is a contemplative stance. And to me, this is a a barometer of of the validity of, of certain theological approaches in the modern world to development versus illegitimate ones. That Theologians that I might even consider to be a little suspect in what they write I will have a certain deference towards and respect for if if I believe that their speculations are rooted in a deep contemplative posture towards the mystery of Christ that they are trying to plumb the depths of, as opposed to somebody whose entire approach to the question is self justified. I have, in other words, it's a conclusion in search of an argument. Uh, I want to reach issue Z over here, or let's say the ordination of women or the legitimation of some moral sexual thing. So I have to back engineer that into the tradition that's not a contemplative posture it seems to me
1: <laughs> no no i think you're right i mean i think this is a it's a difficult thing to say because we're both talking about something that's not a sort of we're not we're not talking about a particular form of syllogistic reasoning we're right. talking about a posture an imagination that's difficult to get to but it's actually right at the heart of you know nurturing the eyes of faith so that you can see these things. Um, and one of the things that we, I think, have to hold out for as, as theologians and as evangelists is the importance of that attitude towards the world. Um, learning how to think and to see is remarkably difficult in a world that um, is not really interested in, in that, those particular modes of attention. Um, and that's one of our great tasks and it's really
0: hard yeah and it is and it it calls for the, for the need actually for the importance even though i'm very sort of critical of it often the importance of theology I just did a podcast with a friend of mine we were talking about the importance of deep theology uh and how and how deep theology is so neglected by so many in the church today and and sadly even by some of the highest leaders of the church today there's this disparagement of doctrine and the disparagement of theological reflection upon doctrine and the kind of theological reasoning that the church is engaged in for 2000 years is if all of that represents a kind of pharisaical hair splitting and and i find that to be a very dangerous trend
1: yeah i think the you know i think that um from from a variety of different schools today it's apparent you could be a Thomist, you can be a sort of resource monte type like myself but it's it's important for us to advocate for the fact that close attention to the basic theological ideas, what does the cross mean, who is God, these are absolutely the foundation of theological arguments. You can't simply leap to something called contextual theology and start waffling away if you can't actually talk for an hour about the incarnation. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I remember a wonderful argument when I was teaching at uh, Emory on a search committee um, in which I admit I was being me. And someone uh, asked me what it was that I wanted to ask candidates who were coming in for interview. And I said, I was on, I, th- I think I'll just ask them how they would explain the incarnation to some first year MDiv students. And one of the older guys on the search committee really lost it with me and said, but but what if that's not their speciality? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this was for a systematics person.
0: Um, <laughs> you know, he had quite an argument,
1: you know, I said, well. Uh, but if they can't do that, why would we want to hire them? <laughs> I mean, I yeah, think what, that, what... that's the problem.
0: What if their speciality was Paul's use of the errorist tense in Second Corinthians? Exactly, or something? Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> and, and not But a that's mean.
1: the problem, isn't it? It's the problem of the integration of theology, and the integration is about understanding the basics and recognizing that meditating upon them is the heart of all of it.
0: Yeah, exactly. And uh, that's, th- I think that's one of the central points made by almost all Ressourcement uh, theologians. Yeah. not just balthazar but uh, joseph rodzinger and others you know you're you're circling around a mystery and if you as a theologian are not doing that the church in her theological reasoning does not have christ at the center and it's a mystery upon which you are constantly returning and circling then then something is truly off something has gone awry
1: this is where i think you know mon types and Thomas types are at the moment at one Um, and they have to make common cause, uh, in the face of all sorts of other nonsense, which happens, um, we shall see, won't we, um, over the next few years.
0: But yeah, that's something I called for about six months ago in an article in Catholic World Report about sort of all these various factions of the church uh, that take the faith seriously, let's put it that way, let's put it to need to make common cause. And boy, I took it on the nose from some quarters for that, you know, like how how can we make common cause with excellent as this is the dang point we have to, because at some point we have to acknowledge that there are the, the differences, say, between Old line Thomas and say De Lubakians on the issue of nature and grace are not unimportant questions. Those are yeah. that's a, an example of deep theology and the kinds of things yeah. we need to think about. But they are peripheral, I think, mm-hmm. to to deeper and more central questions of what form of theological reasoning should the church adopt today uh, in yeah. in her I mean When you, when you the see world.
1: people coming out of theological education, um, ordained or otherwise, who can't really understand why the debate between De Lubac and Thomists matters, then you've got the problem. Um, And that, I think, is often where we are. Um, So we need that sort of return to contemplating the basics built into our forms of theological education um, to get anywhere.
0: What do all of these debates about nature and grace have to do with uh, liberative praxis in in in, yeah. in you know in the world? And I'm all in favor of liberative praxis, but <laughs> but you know, I, I try I'm, to, only,
1: I'm only willing to allow people to use the word praxis if they can tell me they've read some Aristotle first.
0: <laughs> I would wholeheartedly agree with that that stipulation. All right, let's let's uh m- we could talk forever on this issue yeah. of. Know where the church is right now in her theological reasoning i've written a lot on the upcoming big yeah. meeting on meetings in october meeting meetings. the big yeah. meeting on meetings and uh you know the listening church the instrumentum laboris you know with the listening yeah. church the di- listening to what dialoguing with what and it goes back to your notion well it should be with christ right except the instrumentum laboris never mentions christ really uh, <laughs> A lot of sociological buzzwords, but that's maybe a different show for a different day. I'm obviously not a big, I'm not a big fan of the deshino vague, uh in, in any of its iterations. I, I you know I haven't eaten the Teutonic Schnitzel uh that, that some others seem to have imbibed. But anyway, the last point here is I think an interesting one after all this discussion of development and it's it's a deepening a perfecting and and all these sorts of things change within organic continuity the question then arises do we know more than the apostles then I mean do we know more than the apostles so go ahead answer that question
1: Larry yes and no (laughs) (laughs) no this is I think this is a key question you know, and it, it's a yeah. fundamental question that uh, that in a in a couple of places, Newman is puzzling over as well uh, in in the most fundamental sense. No. OK, because not only is the gift of faith in us the same as the gift of faith in the apostles, the gift of faith in the apostles has a peculiar quality and certainty due to a special gift that ours does not have. So there's one sense, a fundamental sense, in which, of course, we don't know more than the apostles. Right. Um, right. But it depends, you know, what you mean by no. Um, Depends what is mean, you know, whatever whatever it was that Clinton said all those years ago.
0: (laughs) Depends what the word, yeah, is, is, or whatever. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. anyway. uh, Great theologian. Um, (laughs) What, there is a sense in which we are able to articulate something that, the apostles do not articulate. You're quite, you know, we can believe or not believe that were we to go back and say to Peter, you know, actually, um, uh, one nature, three persons. How does that sound? We can believe or not believe that Peter with explanation would say, yeah, I recognize that. I know what you're getting at. Or he might look puzzled, but I don't think that's of really great importance because we narrate the process of development as something which God has ordained for us. It's not an achievement of us. So there's no point you saying, well, I, Larry Chap, know a lot more than the apostle John. Okay. At one level, it's just fundamentally stupid thing to say, (laughs) but at another level, uh, it's, it's a, it's a prideful assumption that the knowledge that the church has attained about how to speak about God is somehow, um, an achievement of us rather than something which God has unfolded in us. So it's a really interesting question, I think, uh, to ask because it, it forces you to think about the value of the doctrinal formulae and discussions that have emerged, uh, over, uh, the centuries. And it forces us back to recognize that in a fundamental sense, of course we don't in another sense, we've been given a knowledge to talk that certainly many figures in the early church would not have known, and that that's a gift. So we should yes. look after it.
0: I agree. And I think that's a, a very concise way of putting the problematic. No, we don't know more than the apostles. Theirs was a unique charism uh, yeah. that that cut deeply into the, into their souls uh, and defined them and gave them an imprint that we just don't have yeah, there might be certain things that we perhaps understand a little bit more deeply uh, over time, but, but nevertheless, no, we don't know more. But that brings me to, an, to another question, which is, okay, obviously then doctrines that then evolve over time, say the, the Nicene Christology, the Chalcedonian Christology, it uses particular forms of Greek philosophical and theological terminology. So the question then arises, are those terms, since we're not talking about the positive inspiration of Scripture, their infallibility is simply the negative charism of these words are not going to contain error, that they have truth in them. But are those words themselves, in some sense, now privileged in the tradition in a way that we should be very careful about changing?
1: Yes. And I think the reason for that is a complex one. It's that the church does not simply use Greek words in a way that means that those words are easily replaceable by some other words, you know, most commonly transliterated from German because (laughs) the church does not use those words. It transforms those words into something else. It creates a philosophy as well as adapting one. And that that's a gift of the spirit. To say that to, to, to give all the Christological formulae from the early church is a gift of the spirit to us. We have no good reason for thinking that we can somehow strip out the bits we don't like and doing something else. Rather, it's important for us to accept that we have been given that period as a foundation for the faith and that the church uses and transforms philosophical notions which remain with us. Um, Absolutely. Now that's going to, you know, that's going to piss off all sorts of people. But it seems to me an inescapable fact. Um, otherwise, you find yourself going down the lines of discussions about faith on the one hand and culture on the other, that philosophically are really pretty thin.
0: Yeah. And. uh, 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 uh. Well, Joseph Rotzinger, by the way, wrote things that were very similar to what you just said that yeah. there was a problem that, the, you know, arguing against the Helleni- the Hellenistic thesis that the church was corrupted by all of this Hellenization. And Rotzinger goes, no, no, this was a providential coming together of the, of the Judaic, yeah. Christian, and Greek worlds. And out of that cauldron, Christianity forged this unique worldview. I mean, come on, notions such as words such as, you know, person and you know, prosopon and nature and hypostasis. All of the, and homoousios, these are all terms that were Greek and Latin and so on, and oftentimes there were difficulties in translating between the Greek and the Latin that caused misunderstandings. Nevertheless, the church did not simply slavishly adopt Stoic or Platonic or whatever notions. It adapted those things to a unique Christian incarnational Trinitarian view of God that created an entirely new Set of concepts, and it's not easy to simply then go in with a a scalpel and say, Well, we can just lop off the words and keep the concept. That's such a that's so epistemologically naive to begin with. I think you alluded to that,
1: yeah, 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 no, I think that's right. And I, you know, I agree entirely with uh with Ratzinger on those things. And it's really is you know, if you look at an example of someone who tries, you look at some of the sort of (sighs) late. Rana where he's fiddling around with Christology, here's someone who knows the formulae very well what he comes up with in the end is really pretty much a mess um, because it's remarkably difficult to try and say well I've got the idea in those terms but without the terms and the richness of history that they have with them Um, it's far better that we recognize that's a heritage we have to spend time in our theological education passing on to people and developing an awareness of that's fine. No one said theology was going to be easy.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, okay. and and a rec- and and not to recognize that in adopting new terminologies, you're adopting actually new philosophical constructs. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. you you use the example of Rahner. Rahner can say, I'm I'm simply taking the old ideas and putting them in new new dress. Yeah. But it in adopting the language that he does, he's essentially adopting a Kantian worldview. A yeah. Kantian epistemology to which he's answering, which which creates an, an entirely different theological matrix from that of of the received yeah. of the received tradition, which had negative consequences.
1: No, the church, you know, in learning theology, you're learning in part a culture. You're learning a tradition and a culture that's changing. That's yeah, I mean a more is added, fine, great, but you're still also learning a culture and a tradition. And that's that's what it's about. And that's one of the reasons, you know, I've written about it. We've talked about it before. It seems to be so problematic when learning those materials becomes a preliminary to doing theology um, in a theological curriculum rather than the heart of it. Um, And we need to think about that an awful lot more than we are doing.
0: Well, you know, and let's, let's, so let's dwell on that for a second. We've we, already been here an hour, but let's dwell on that for just one second and get, go a little bit off script and talk about theological training and education today. Uh, I remember when I was at Fordham in the university in the early 90s working on my dissertation, uh, the the big raging debate then was about contextualized theology and experiential theology, of course, and, and there was this big push to change the theology curriculum so that PhD students would not only learn theology, but we'd be taking courses in sociology and psychology and other disciplines to which we could then relate our theology. And I stood up, I marked, it was me being me, to quote you earlier, I had a me moment where I stood up and, you know, I was like the turd in the punch bowl at the Queen's coronation. Uh, I, I was really, you know, and I said, no, I completely disagree with all of that. I said I just mastered somewhat the contents of the old Jerome Biblical Commentary, and now I see they've come out with a new one, which has now created an existential crisis for me. Like, how in the hell do I keep up? with In other words, point is, do we not have enough on our? There's a crisis of belief in our own sources and what it is as theologians we're supposed to be studying. You know, uh, maybe I should instead of taking a sociology class, I should be taking a class in fourth century Greek. Uh, yeah. And 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 learning more about what Gregory of Nyssa meant when he used certain Greek terms and so forth, or learn more about scriptural traditioning processes, you know, for, from Judaism. And you, you get my point. There's yeah, yeah. there's such a wealth of things that the theologian must attend to that modern theology, it seems to me, is saying, well, we don't need to bother with any of that stuff anymore.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's and I think it's compounded because when you're sent off to do those courses in sociology and psychology and what have you you're not really presented with a hermeneutic that enables you to to see where those sciences also make a whole host of theological judgments i mean this is where john milbank was right 30 years ago um the social sciences can be immensely helpful as long as you know how to use them theologically and i think that most people coming out with an undergraduate degree a masters and a phd have not done enough classical theology to make those sorts of judgments, and that's exactly. that's the problem. Um, and I, and I, and I think it's particularly problematic as well in seminary educations, where there's there's not enough doctrinal formulation formation that really helps people to dig down and get a sense of what it is they hold to, so that they can, you know, preach a decent a decent homily. So I think we're still struggling with that. And it's not. And this, interestingly, I think, is not necessarily the fault in the seminary context. It's not the fault of Rome. If you go and look at the the Ratio Studiorum since the council, it's pretty clear. You've got to know your patristics, right? Uh, In what proportion of seminaries are there actually is there actually good patristic doctrinal teaching? I've spoken spoken at plenty of seminaries and the answer is a tiny proportion. Yeah. People are not prepared for it. Bishops don't understand why it matters. It's not being enforced. So and we really need to, to think about that um, and to do a little bit more work promoting really good, solid seminary education for priests, as well as formation of uh, people in universities for teaching in those situations.
0: Yeah, I, I, I could not agree more, especially too about your earlier comments about the need of a hermeneutic to be able to retrieve you know, the sociology and psychology and, uh, and political science, political theory, and, and all those other, because those things all come fraught. They're larded with all kinds of modern oh, yeah. biases and assumptions. Uh, not all of them friendly to the faith, if not most of them. Uh, and so my, my view would be that theological education needs to attend more to the patristics, to the sources, to scripture, to Aquinas, his the common tradition, the resource month guys, the entire history of 20th century theology. And then, Encourage theologians to be a, a bit of an autodidact when it comes to some of these other other disciplines. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is the age of the printing press and the interwebs, right? So it's not it's not impossible. I never took a sociology course except my sociology one hundred and one as an undergraduate, and yet I know a bit and about no sociology <laughs> because because I cause, well, it was forced on me, but uh, 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 you know, but I've read sociology books and I've. Yeah cherry pick the ones that I think are going to be most helpful to because I have a hermeneutic and I'll, yeah. I'll, you know, I'll look at someone like, oh, let's take a René Girard, who does a lot of yeah, sociology, say, yeah. OK, that's somebody I want to read. Um, anyway, I, I, I think these are all terribly important questions, and I am no expert at all. You know more than I would of what's really going on in seminaries and houses of theological education these days. I know that my alma mater, uh, Fordham, has, you uh, Sort of jumped the shark these days. It seems to me, and, and gone insane. But
1: yeah, I don't know yeah, if that's seemed- happening. I mean, there are, you know, there are good, there are good things happening, but um, there's there's not enough reflection on what a theological curriculum should look like for good theological reasons. You know, it gets yeah. professionalized, divided up into little bits. Everyone's got their little kingdom. Um, there's there's not enough intellectual reflection on that, and we really need that because otherwise, you know, the waves will wash over us.
0: Well, and to to come back full circle then to the topic at hand as we close out our conversation, uh, that kind of theological education, deep theological education is absolutely necessary in order to have a proper understanding of what we mean when we say that doctrine develops. Uh, You know, that we're not engaged in some sort of Joachim of Fiori the landscape here where God is doing a new thing is a justification for just about anything.
1: Yeah. 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 No, no, I, I, it's, it's a big problem. Uh, and as you say, where uh, there are a whole host of issues where that's precisely the argument that seems to me to be made uh, because it's new, it must be revelatory and exciting. Well, we, we need to think again about what we mean.
0: Amen. And let's, let's let that be the last word. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, th- uh, thank you for your time. I know you're in the UK. You're five hours l- later than I am here. It's early in the morning for me. Uh, thanks a lot. This was a great conversation, Lewis.
1: Great to talk, Larry.
0: All right. I'm going to stop the recording.